This is a Federal News Network podcast. The National Science Foundation has established a new directorate, the first new one in 30 years. It's called the Technology, Innovation, and Partnerships, or TIP, directorate. For what it's all about, here's NSF director, Dr. Setraman Panchanathan. Dr. Panchanathan, good to have you on. Tom, this is great to be with you as always. And the NSF's new assistant director for technology, innovation, and partnerships, Dr. Owen Giancindani. Dr. Giancindani, good to have you on as well. And we should say that you're not new to NSF, but new to this role. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Tom. All right. Tell us about TIP, Technology, Innovation, and Partnerships. Isn't that what the NSF has always done? Tom, you know, you're absolutely correct. NSF, over the last more than seven decades, has made unbelievable discoveries possible, and those discoveries then translated into eventual technologies that have improved the quality of life as well as promoted the objectives of having a robust economy. Now, if you look at the DNA of NSF, I think the last time we spoke, Tom, I talked about this DNA of NSF being curiosity-driven, discovery-based explorations, synergistic and symbiotic with use-inspired, solutions-focused translations or innovations. And I said to you at that time that explorations make possible innovations, and innovations in turn make possible more explorations. This rich symbiosis is something that NSF has always you know, fostered and done a great job with. And there are many, many outcomes to speak for. In the interest of time, I won't go into that. But I also said to you that this is a moment for strengthening at speed and scale. And so this is about strengthening the outcome-based activities much more intentionally. How can we spread the geography of innovation to innovation ecosystems everywhere? How do we establish strong translation pathways? And how do we do this with partnerships across all aspects and everywhere across the nation? So, Dr. Giancindani, do you see then more people grantees types of organizations being brought into the NSF orbit. And it sounds like you're almost talking about this or thinking about this as an accelerator type of program. Absolutely. We're looking to try to get folks who are certainly have long been a part of the NSF research community, our academic researchers at institutions of higher education, community colleges all across the country. But we're looking to go broader as well, right? I think we're really deeply interested in as the director described it, that outcomes-focused research. So what are the types of challenges, the societal challenges, for instance, the economic challenges that motivate research questions in key technology areas, whether it's artificial intelligence or wireless or advanced manufacturing or materials and so forth. And so can we bring some of those users, some of the beneficiaries of the research that we could be supporting to bear and into our orbit as you described it? So I'm talking about industry. I'm talking about state and local and tribal governments. I'm talking about civil society. I'm talking about communities of practice. Can we bring those stakeholders together with academic researchers, together with nonprofits, philanthropic organizations to help motivate the research, to help shape and orchestrate the research that we're trying to support, and then to pilot, prototype, test out those research results in those very same communities and those very same ecosystems and learn from that, right? There goes, again, that iterative process that the director described. Are there any particular areas that you think need immediate attention, like the climate is a high priority for the Biden administration? And I guess my secondary question is, in involving so many more people and organizations, how do you ensure rigorous scientific integrity and thoroughness that is the hallmark of NSF grantees? Yes, Tom, I think we'll have both societally motivating uh, grand challenge like problems, like climate is a good example. 
Now we are emerging out of this pandemic, and that has shown us that there's a lot of need for how do we get fundamental science and the outcomes both happening at the same time, and that promotes the rich outcomes that we are seeing today playing out real time. So as well as that, we are also looking to technologies, emerging technologies like quantum or technologies like AI, advanced wireless, advanced manufacturing, advanced semiconductors, right? Uh, synthetic biology, biotechnology. So you can think of all these as tremendous opportunities for us to build ecosystems of prosperity everywhere. Tom, last time we talked about, I said that talent and ideas are democratized and everywhere across our nation. How do we therefore build innovation ecosystems everywhere across the nation? It might be in a place, the best possible smart agriculture environment that we can build, right? And that then spurs out of entrepreneurship, new industries, as well as new talent being generated, both at the same time. We are speaking with Dr. Setraman Panchanathan, the director of the National Science Foundation, and with Dr. Erwin Dhyanchandani, the assistant director for technology, innovation, and partnerships. And if you look at the research areas just on the main NSF site, which I'm doing now, there are a lot of them, biological, education, human resources, computer, and on and on and on. Is TIP going to ingest some of these and own it? Otherwise, how are you going to kind of get along organizationally with people that already have deep research programs in a lot of these areas that you'll also be working in? I will just say one word and I will try give it to Urban to expand on this. When we envisioned TIP, we envisioned it as a cross-cutting directorate. You rightly point out all the existing directorates. The cross-cutting nature of the directorate is how do you leverage what is happening in those directorates and then rapidly scale and speed up the translation pathways? At the same time, it is also going to see how we can influence and energize more activities happening in the directorates so that we can get future technologies and industries of the future of the industries of the future, as I would say, all made possible. Urban? Yeah. So, Tom, just to build on the director's comment, you know, success of TIP is dependent upon partnership with all of the existing directorates. The directorate characterizes it as a horizontal. You can characterize it as horizontal. You can characterize it as building the relationships with our colleagues in the biological sciences, in the computer sciences, and so forth. To really put a spotlight on the use-inspired, solution-oriented aspects of the research, to double down on that, and then, as the director said, to accelerate the translation of research results to practice. You know, if I can, I'll come back to something you asked a moment ago, Tom, about partnerships, and, and, you know, this means bringing in folks from a variety of different communities. How do you ensure the rigor of the science that you're supporting? So let's talk about that for a quick second here. First, I'll give you an example of the kind of collaboration that we hope to engender through this directorate. We just announced a partnership, a $100 million partnership with the Intel Corporation, specifically where Intel's providing $50 million and we're providing $50 million to support research and education activities on the next generation of semiconductor designs and manufacturing. That is what's necessary to help us sort of maintain and grow U.S. competitiveness for years to come. And that's the kind of partnership that we hope to get out of this. And absolutely along the way, we'll have our rigorous merit review process. We'll have expertise drawn in to ensure that we are funding the best ideas, the brightest ideas with that type of rigor. That particular one interests me, the semiconductor, because all of the leading edge work is done for gaming at this point. That's where you get to the sub-nano and the nano types of etching and so forth, whereas, say, U.S. military chips use the old big fat pathways, relatively speaking. It's all microscopic. But it sounds like a program like that could in some way help the chip shortage in the long term and also bring back an area of manufacturing 
developed in the United States in the first place where the first transistor was made and maybe get us back where we, I feel, we should have still been after all these years. That's a very, very good point, Tom. And, you know, when you talk about the very first transistors made, and I often talk about the Bell Lab kind of frameworks, right? And that's what we're trying to do all across the nation. Bell Lab kind of frameworks through public-private partnerships. Clearly, to your point about semiconductors, absolutely. If you look at every ingredient that will make us successful into the future is, of course, the workforce talent that is needed, the new ideas, emerging semiconductor ideas, as well as making sure supply chain and other issues that we're talking about right now are leveraging the strength of research in order to be able to build all these manufacturing, advanced manufacturing centers for the future, and that we are reclaiming that global competitiveness that we always have had and seeing how we can supercharge that. And if you look at research organizations across the government, and certainly at least in two or three of the armed forces, because I've had interviews on this, but also in civilian areas, DHS, there are many programs trying to make sure that historically unused parts of the brain power of the nation, the historically black colleges, the underutilized. There's a whole lot of brain power out there that, for whatever reason, has maybe not had access to this kind of funding and support. And so how will you coordinate with all of those programs that are ongoing to make sure that you're not all stumbling over each other for the same lab somewhere in a college? A good point. Again, I think we are doing a lot, as Irvin will expand again on this, There's a conscious effort here, Tom, to make sure that we are listening, configuring, and serving all those places that currently have not had their full share of participation. And so when we talk about innovation everywhere, it is about in participation, in collaboration with the places where more talent and ideas needs to be pulled and made possible. Yeah, and just to build on that, Tom, I'll say, you know, we've actually already done a series of listening sessions to the director's comment about listening, listening sessions with HBCUs, another with HSIs, another with tribal colleges and universities, and yet another with community colleges. All of these together, you know, one way that I describe it, this is sort of a vast and really untapped treasure trove of talent that exists across the country. And so we have an opportunity, we have a responsibility, not just an opportunity, we have a responsibility to design programs that allow us to meet people where they are in terms of their readiness and their ability to engage and help to grow capacity at these types of organizations to really engage with our uh, colleagues and friends at those organizations. And Tom, you well know that NSF has a rich history of partnering with other agencies. We've partnered with Department of Agriculture, for example, with DHS, with various parts of the DOD as well. That's why Partnerships is in the name of this directorate in part, right? Because we want to be able to ensure that we are dovetailing with the efforts that they have and really creating the symbiotic relationships and efforts that will help us boost up capacity building at these different organizations. And I had a question about another cross-cutting kind of direction, and that is the establishing translation pathways as one of the lines of effort, because there's this whole gigantic ecosystem of the Federal Lab Consortium. And then as your website mentions, there's other ways that get technology out into the marketplace, America's Seed Fund, the Mm -hmm. NSF Innovation Corps, and so forth that's already there. So equally true that you'll try to work in with those groups that might be pursuing similar technologies through different channels, but the idea is to commercialize it all at some point. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we talk about partnerships. Partnerships also begins with other agencies that also have programming programs like the SBAR, STTR. As you know, SBAR, STTR was birthed at NSF. Now I'm so thrilled that it is everywhere. In the 70s, it was birthed. Likewise, ICOR was birthed at NSF and now it's 
you know, proliferating into other parts of the nation. So through other agencies too. So I think I'm very, we are very thrilled about that. And so those, those are going to be scaled, Tom, no question about that. And also in partnership, they're going to be even more. But then we're also looking at new frameworks, like what we call them regional innovation engines. How might we build through public-private partnerships a stronger translational pathway for ideas from academia, industry, and community, and more, all coming together, fusing, and seeing how we might then through that develop new solutions, new technologies, as well as new talent, all of them being done at the same time. And just a question about TIP itself. Is there a place with a door that says TIP on it within the NSF? I mean, you said you're kind of virtual in many ways and drawing on existing structures, but is there a way to signal physically that TIP is at the top? So I wouldn't say TIP is at the top, Tom, but I would say that TIP is certainly a key element now of what the National Science Foundation is trying to do. And let me just say that besides our web presence, which is the way folks can find us all across the country, we do have a physical space within the building itself, right? So I'm there a couple of days a week, for example, and there's a physical space with a door and names and, and so forth. And, you know, part of this is as the director said, and you alluded to this, SBIR, STTR, we have certain programs that NSF has long supported that are now a part of the TIP umbrella. So that team is now a part of the TIP umbrella as a starting point as we take this initial step and look to grow from this initial step. TIP sure. is not about TIP being at the top, but TIP making yeah. everything to the top, bringing everything up to the top. Or you could put a TIP in the format of putting all your wood behind the same arrowhead, as I think one famous tech exec used to say. And just a final topical question, $10.5 billion proposed for NSF, this all just coming out in the president's 2023 proposal. Is that good for NSF? Is it up? And are you pleased with the resources you'll have? We are thrilled by this, uh, Tom. Uh, we are very thrilled by the president's commitment to looking at NSF as a mechanism of advancing into the future. So we're very excited by the budget and the components of the budget that will allow both science and technology and engineering, all of them advancing at the same time with, at speed and scale. So we're very, very thrilled. We are very grateful to Congress in both the House and the Senate on both sides, truly supportive of NSF. We are very grateful to the administration and the Hill. Uh, we, cannot, we cannot say that enough. Uh, so we are looking forward to the future. All right. Dr. Setraman Panchanathan is the director, and Dr. Erwin Janchandani is the assistant director for Technology, Innovation, and Partnerships at the National Science Foundation. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Tom. It was great to be with you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information about TIP at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.